0: Hello my name is David Runciman and this is Talking Politics and I am really excited to say that we're not in my office we're at Jeff Lloyd's house and I'm here with Jeff and Ed Miliband and we're going to be talking about politics and reasons to be cheerful because we're the podcast that isn't usually cheerful and this week we're going to be So you're usually reasons to be depressed Someone said you're the end of times podcast to me oh recently but We're reasons to be apocalyptic <laughs> and you're reasons to be cheerful Definitely Yeah <laughs> Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast and we'll have some more soon. There's a reading list of pieces to accompany the podcast at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking, along with a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. Twelve issues of fearless, expansive, elegant writing for just £12. Ed, we put out a lecture that I did, and you were very kind to come to yeah. and say a little bit about afterwards, just before yeah, Christmas. Yeah, you put it out without my bit, actually. Yeah, I'm sorry about that. I think it was the quality of the audio. <laughs> yeah, that's a good.
1: Though. I've used that yeah, excuse yeah, on exactly. before now as well. <laughs> we really just didn't did the recording. Didn't yeah, work. yeah, of course yeah. we would. Yeah, yeah. So <laughs> this is an opportunity now to.
0: It was about something we talk about a lot, which is why no one has the faintest idea what's going on in politics anymore, and one of the themes what I was talking about is. We're used to polls getting it wrong. It happens all the time. Journalists getting it wrong. It's kind of almost what they're in the business of doing. But politicians not having a clue what's coming next has been a theme of the last two years. Election after election, And it's not just that the losers are shocked, but that the winners are shocked too. Trump seemed to be completely astonished that he won. The Brexit people looked pretty amazed. Corbyn and the people around Corbyn had no idea what was coming on election night. Just give us a bit about what you did say after my lecture, which is why why are politicians so in the dark about what people are thinking?
1: I think the uniting reason for the three events you talked about is deep dissatisfaction with the existing order, the economic and political settlement. And I think that's why Brexit won one of my constituency, perhaps we'll get into this was one of the top Brexit voting constituencies. I think that's why Trump won despite his hideousness. And I think that's why Jeremy Corbyn tapped into a pool of support, which nobody, and I think you might well be right, including his supporters, realized was going to be there. And of course, each of these events has their own contingent reasons why it happened to do with other people, the other campaigns, all of that stuff. But for me, that's the fundamental uniting factor.
0: And the politicians are somehow not picking up on this because it's it's their livelihood, right? Apart from anything else, they should be incentivized to know what the people who might be going to vote for them are thinking. And they just seem to have missed it. That period may be coming to an end. I mean, this is the thing I was going to ask you as well, whether we're going to look back on that sort of, basically, since we've been doing our podcast, our catchphrase is Corbyn, Brexit, Trump, like exclamation mark, exclamation mark. And it may have settled down again, I don't know, but. For the last two years, it's like they've been sort of feeling
1: in the dark. It feels to me like there's two reasons for it, or two reasons that I can think of. One is a sort of bubble effect that everybody talks to each other. And it is, you know, very interesting about the 2017 election, Tory MPs, Labour MPs. It wasn't a sort of party thing as to whether you saw it coming or not. (laughs) Nobody nobody really did. did. So it's a bubble effect, but it's also, I think, a sort of pre-existing prejudice effect. In other words... I think I said in commenting on your lecture, there's this term, the Overton window. What are the the acceptable parameters of political debate? And I think somehow there's something about the sort of political collective subconscious that says if, If the thing being put forward is outside the acceptable, you know, Jeremy Corbyn can't possibly do well. He's because of, you know, he's too left wing. Donald Trump can't win because he's so hideous and, you know, has these misogynist, racist views. Brexit can't happen because, you know, what would what would happen then? You know, people think, well, it can't possibly happen then. (laughs)
2: And then it does. And then it does. And And then it happens again, and then it happens again. Well, and maybe people are then getting getting sort of wise. But maybe it'll make politicians think twice about making rash promises. Because, you know, some of those people you mentioned, it seems like they were saying, oh, yeah, we'll do this, and nobody will ever vote for it, so I can say whatever I like here. And then all of a sudden they find themselves in the White House. Donald Trump, from what I understand, it all started out as a negotiating position with NBC because he didn't like what they'd offered him for the new series of The Apprentice. So, and here we are. Yeah, and, and here we are. But he didn't think he was going to end up at the White House. So we
0: used to do this thing, we don't do it so much anymore, but I want to do it now, ask you, Jeff, particularly, where we'd ask people about, because part of the rhythm of those elections was most people in this country, at least because of the way the US election, the timing happened, it was like two in the morning, three in the morning when the penny dropped. So we would ask people, you know, how was Brexit night for you? How was Trump night for you? But if you look back over the and this is presumably part of the motivation for the podcast that you're doing now. But you look back over these two years, was there a moment through all of these where you thought, Oh my god, that one just
2: I had no idea? Brexit I saw come in because lots of my relatives up north who I would have thought of as typical Labour supporters posted about Brexit and seemed, you know, into it and come on everybody, let's get behind this which was, was terrifying. So Trump, you were outside of the bubble for that one? Yeah, I I was sort of could see that happening on Facebook. But Trump, even the day before I was on the radio, making fun of the idea of Donald Trump saying, let's make America great again, and whatever his catchphrases were, because it seems so preposterous to me. And my wife is American. And at the time of that election, we got a newborn baby who was sleeping really poorly. So she works in the evening, she she came home, I'd managed to get the baby to sleep. And she says, right, we should watch this, she should sit up and watch it. I said, look, don't let the sideshow of Donald Trump detract from the fact that your country is on the brink of history. You're about to elect the first ever woman president. Why don't you go to bed? You sleep. I'll stay up and watch it because I'll be up with the baby anyway. And then when it looks like she's about to make I'll a speech. I'll bring you the good news. Yeah, I'll, I'll come up and wake you up. So um, if you remember, it was a horrible night here. It was like a sort of rainy Stormy night, and I had to come upstairs at three, four, five in the morning or whatever it was. And that I've got good news and bad news. The good news is the baby slept through the night. <laughs> the bad news is Donald Trump is, is your, your president. president. Yeah, and I mean, she just went into it. it resembled shock. She was in a state. So you said in your sort
0: of little snippet that every podcast now has to tell people when they should listen. That it it did come out of your feeling that politics was in a bad place, and yet there are all
2: these good ideas out there and no one's talking about them. At the time when we first started talking about it it was before the 2017 election and it seemed like you'd got this Conservative government who were going to be around for a long time and a Labour Party that looked to my eyes, at least unelectable. The Trump stuff was happening in the States, just it felt so divided. And I thought, so if you can't kind of get behind what you would usually get behind, almost like supporting a political party like you do a football team, I thought, what are the ideas out there? There must be things we can focus on while that level of politics sorts itself out. So that was where the idea came from.
0: And the thing that I think everyone listens to it is struck by it, is that there are, I mean, so I'm an academic, I study politics for a living, so I'm not the best judge of this. But there are so many ideas out there, and a lot of them are good ideas. And a lot of people on both sides of the political divide say that's a good idea of the things that you talk about. And yet, this is my reasons to be gloomy bit. And yet it's really, really hard to
1: act on them. Well Or am I being too I think you're being well Because they've been out there for a while. When people say to me, you know Ever since the 2015 general election, which I lost, in case your listeners have forgotten. That was uh, the fourth election that I yeah, talked exactly. about in my Yeah, you, you were diplomatic <laughs> enough not to talk about that. Um, it was also you know, a surprise. I, I, you know, look, yes, I've, you know, obviously it was incredibly difficult for me to, and for, because of what I saw happen to the country. But, you know, I've always felt ever, even since then, you know, actually, uh, progressives often l- don't, their ideas don't necessarily succeed at the beginning, but they're... but. The objective circumstances, the inequality, the fact that the next generation is doing worse than the last, all of those things, they're reasons to be short term, very gloomy, but they produce a desire and a demand for change. So in a sense, I think those ideas, maybe it'll take longer, maybe it will take less time, but those ideas will, some of those ideas will happen, I think. And and the very fact that you had Theresa May going on the steps of Downing Street, essentially saying our country's too unequal, it's got to change. You know, they're about to implement the energy price cap, which I propose. I'm not saying that's revolutionary, but they used to say was living in a Marxist universe. It moves. It moves. And I suppose what we're trying to do is, is convince people that there are, and actually there are more ideas out there than I even I knew. I mean, Jeff actually had the insight. I said, are we going to run out? And he said, no, I don't think so. Uh, and, you know, there are lots of good ideas out there. And I think they can happen. And and look, just take one example, which is I was on a panel the other day with um, Rachel Lomax, who used to be the um, permanent secretary of the DWP, and David Willits who used to be a conservative minister. What they both said in different ways, well, at the time has come for wealth taxation to be really taken seriously. David Willits is chairing a commission on it. That's a sign that across the political spectrum, there's a sense that things have got to change. I want to ask a variant on that question that people
0: ask about the Oscars. Which one do you think will win and which one do you think should win? So of the ones that you've done so far, which is the one that you would most like to see happen? And then which one would you actually put your money on? Saying if we're talking about over the next five years, if you could
2: pick one that you've talked about. We'll I talk got about so excited about the idea of deliberative democracy which I know a lot of other people which have as as well we we talk about what will we do next week what we do the week after and Alex who does the background research for the show he keeps saying we should do something on sortition and we oh god that sounds so what is it it's a different form of democracy yeah Alex we're gonna we're gonna do a different form of democracy that's the ancient world oh great yeah and then when we got talking about it I got incredibly Enthused by it, because people accept juries. We're willing to accept the decisions of juries, and and if people felt like their peers were being well informed and considering things in a way that perhaps they didn't have the time to, especially if they had the sense that they weren't being spoon fed or manipulated, I think that's a really exciting idea. So
0: I've just come from a meeting which is about looking at the future of referendums, where people were talking about your podcast, but also talking about. The one thing, even though most of us, I think, were quite sceptical to start with, we've all agreed on is deliberative democracy. Yeah. It's also not a terrible name. But just if we're going to have referendums in the future, you can't just do this one question thing without right. giving people a chance to talk it through in a way that's structured. and But it's democratic.
2: Well, and and exactly answer to the one that yeah, should or I would. Think that's the one that should yeah. Yeah, cause, just people making informed decisions rather than oh I, I don't like it, his eyes are too close together i 'm not going to vote for him i mean just people, people you know having the time to think about things and think about the different options and if you heard that podcast, not about the outcome of the brexit in or out referendum but in terms of what different options do you like when people take the time to to consider it and are presented with the information in a more neutral way they surprise you you know it restores your faith in people a little bit so
0: with that one do you think because it it tends to and i think in the discussions you had it gets presented as an add-on i mean like we've got this basic structure which is representative party democracy and then there are ways that we could add this into it that would make it work better but there's a bit of me that thinks you can't really add it on. Actually, in the end, you're going to have to go much harder for this. Relati- you think it's an relati- either-or? I don't think it's yeah. an either-or, but it it's tends to be presented even by the advocates for it as a kind Ronciman
1: of... Ronciman, with his plan to abolish elections. i was <laughs> <So laughs> going to put it more so.
0: as... <laughs> I mean, because representative democracy is part of the problem at the moment. I mean, the thing that we have got now, parties and... You know, I'm not in favour of abolishing elections, but partisan for the record. For the record. But the, the basic structure of it, it is massively divisive. And I just have this fear that if you add that onto it, it will get swallowed up by it. And you have to do something more than just do the add-on.
1: Well, I think you've got to take it seriously. And like Jeff, I was a sortition sceptic and came out much more positive about it. And Gordon Brown did sort of flirt with this 10 years ago. And that's maybe partly why I was skeptical I, I think it is a supplement maybe i would say this as a politician but it's you know, harder for you to come yeah, out and say what well, i've just said but i mean for me to but, say. but i suppose you can think of a lot of knotty issues where actually the politicians are behind the public like health and social care how do we fund health and social care where what became clear to me in the in the doing the podcast is that it could become a way in which it could sort of free up political debate. So in other words, people think, oh, well, does anyone really want to pay more tax for health or are they really going to accept difficult solutions on social care? If you got a proper deliberative process and it came up with some solutions, it would almost give confidence to the political debate and maybe to the politicians to, to push these solutions. I'm not sure it replaces it.
0: No, I don't think it can replace it. I just think it probably needs protecting from it as well.
1: Arm's length, you mean? yeah. Yeah, that's um, interesting. I'm not sure. and, and obviously In the, Mongolia. Yeah, now I was going to say, because it... these
0: examples are always ones where you think, that's a lovely idea, but really, I mean, it works at the local level in lots of places. It's um, It works in Reykjavik, and
1: you're about to tell me it works in Mongolia. Apparently, yeah.
0: Yeah, so um, Westminster, it's just...
1: Yeah, but, but I mean, in a way, as you say, you know, people want political change, and this is one of the ways of bringing it forward. Can I pick mine? Yes, you are allowed to pick yours. It doesn't um, have to be the same as So guys. mine
2: is, um, I mean, I, I, I like sortitions. We're all sortitions. Oh, God, us. you're not going to say talking to people on public transport, Oh, you? well, I was going to come to that, but uh, no, I wasn't. Um, I was actually going to say universal basic income. Which is where you started, right? Yeah. And remember, think, that was
1: your first one? Yeah. yeah. And I think the reason I say that is quite interesting because... If I was designing the next Labour manifesto, I don't think I would be able to say we're going to have Big Bang Universal-based kingdom. This is, for those who don't know, replacing means-tested complex social security system with one flat rate payment going all the way up the population. You More or less it gets taxed back from the highest earners, but it's a way of cutting through the complexity of welfare giving people a platform to stand on, you know, might well be more relevant in the technological era where jobs are going to be more uncertain. But the thing, the reason I like it the most is because I think it says, what kind of society do we want to be? And it asks a sort of big question. It sort of trusts in human nature. It says, look, we can liberate people from the complexity of the current system to do great things if we only give them the chance to do it and sort of expand their sense of choice about the the options open to them personally i think the the next labor manifesto or tory manifesto i hope will commit to sort of piloting this doing it seriously seeing what the effects are
0: because it's probably the ultimate one of those ideas which has a surprisingly broad reach across the spectrum actually in the states people on the libertarian right some of them are pretty keen on it right the way through to the radical
1: left. Does any of that make you feel a bit nervous? Yeah. An it, idea
0: that kind of well, you, pulls people across? You know, is it sort of,
1: a, you know, Elon Musk, if Elon Musk is in favour of it? Yeah, you know, Mark uh, are Zuckerberg. you really for it? Um, Look, what it can't become is an excuse to somehow sort of slash the broader welfare state, i.e. the NHS or other benefits that are necessary. But I don't think the fact that there is this broad coalition should sort of put us off if it's got something going for it. And I think it has got something going for it. And in a way... For me, it speaks to this point which I made earlier, which is, what is big enough to meet the current crisis, the current situation? What really thinks big? And in a way, I'd say, to, I do say to the people who say to me, "I think UBI is a terrible idea." I say, "Well, fine, but think on that scale. Think about that scale of change." Like one of the messages going back to the earlier part of the conversation that people are sending us is, they want big change. Trump was big change. Brexit was big change. Not the change that I like but it was an offer of big change
0: so is there one that you've heard that you just thought that's not going to work
1: talking to people on trains
0: because <laughs> <laughs> they can't all be <laughs> i'm not trying to but you no, know no, then, of course. Like, these are these are all great ideas but some of them must have had you thinking so sortition you come in a bit skeptical come out thinking oh that yeah have there been one or two that the other way around you thought that's a great idea and after now an you thought no I need to look at a list i think um
2: they're all great. They're all great idea. ideas.
1: We, we love them all equally. Because um, you, could, you could end up drowning people in good ideas. Do you think that's the problem there?
2: There was the patriotic millionaires. That was a very nice idea, yeah. but I don't know how many millionaires would get on board with it. With being patriotic. And paying more in tax and being more responsible. Not hiding their money offshore.
1: I mean, I think one of the things that we try and do, maybe this doesn't answer your question, is that they're, they're in different categories. These things. So prison reform, when you talk to, as we did Vicky Price and Charlie Faulkner and the chap Niels Öberg from uh, Sweden, who used to, who directs the Swedish Prison Service, you think this all makes such sense in in that case it's not that the ideas are somehow outlandish or haven't been thought about or or aren't kind of obvious. It's that the whole political atmosphere mitigates against them, and so that's the sort of area where you might think, you know, I hope it might happen, but. You, past experience suggests it's very hard to navigate that route on prison reform.
2: Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did-we-just-hit-a-million-orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the Internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com work. Shopify.com work.
0: Can I ask you a variant of the question that I asked? your brother David when he came on a few months ago which is about and your podcast comes out of and in fact a lot of political podcasts come out of the fact people are really interested in politics at the moment part of the reason they're interested is they're angry but also that including
1: yours which was in a way the originator of many that came afterwards
0: (laughs) they're angry they're also kind of like you say wanting something new but the period that I sort of grew up in politically I mean we're all sort of a certain age. I'm the
2: oldest, but... Is that not the oldest? 48? 50. i i millennium. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. So you, you yeah. were both flower power children of yeah, the swinging exactly, 60s. Exactly, we're the children jeff got real hang-ups on this subject, <laughs> but David. But the, the,
0: the bit went from when we were students through to sort of... I mean, obviously, you were in government for a yeah. period of this time. Yeah. But the, particularly the Blair years, so particularly 97 to 2007 it looks now a bit like a really unusual period in modern political history because the conditions were so benign, basically. I mean, at the time when we were living through it, we didn't know that. And I think we thought, oh, this is a new politics. It's exciting. It's this, it's that. But actually, when you look back on it now, and it also actually includes the major government in a way, the period of the Great Moderation, where the economic conditions were benign, notwithstanding 9-11 and everything else, it was a broadly peaceful time in many ways. People were getting wealthier. And we didn't do any of these things then. I mean, that's the sort of one of the puzzles, which is that when the conditions are right, we don't think, what are the big ideas? This is a rare chance to actually change the prison system or change the welfare system. Or We tinker, I say we, you tinker, but we don't do it. And then the real crisis hits and we think, oh, we need to do it. But we're doing it at a time where it's really hard to do it because people are angry and they're scared and politics is really divisive. And I did ask, David, when you look back on it now, do you have regrets that when the conditions were benign,
1: the big thinking maybe wasn't there? Such a hard and good question. I would say a couple of things. First of all, I think the objective circumstances being more benign didn't therefore produce the context for the kind of radical change you're talking about. So when everyone's getting better off inequality was going to be more on the back burner. There was kind of lots of reasons why it wasn't a sort of burning platform, and therefore the conditions were driving less radical change. But secondly, Marx said uh, men make their own history, but not in circumstances of their own choosing. I think you can't ignore the fact that Blair and Brown in particular, I'm not sort of blaming them, because I think the government achieved great things, rebuilding the public realm, public services and so on. They were born into an era, their formative era was Labour losing elections, you know, they were trying to show that Labour had come to terms with capitalism. So what would my critique of New Labour be is it didn't really have a critique of capitalism. It was too dewy-eyed about capitalism and about capitalism's benefits and less clear about its disadvantages and its injustices. But I think they were trying to show they'd come to terms with capitalism, so it was very hard for them to get to a critique of capitalism.
0: So do you think you need the burning platform? I mean, in a way, that's the the scary question, which is if things have to be on fire before we can do any of this, that's not a reason to be cheerful. But it's surprising
2: then so little came after the crash.
0: That's true. Yeah. You know, I mean, because, yeah, we're more than 10 years on and now people seem to be hungry for change. Yeah. You
2: know, um, it's not like a situation with the Great Depression or the Second World War where society gets rebuilt slightly differently in the aftermath of I it. I
1: suppose I suppose maybe my burning platform isn't. Politicians respond to the demands of the moment. And there wasn't a minimum wage. I'm not going to give you the laundry list, but you know, there wasn't a minimum wage. The public services were crumbling and were rebuilt. So so they were responding to that moment.
2: And, but this and is like put, how companies run as well. They, you know, they're looking at the next set of financial results. They're not looking at 10 or 20 years into the future. Is there any scope for planning like that in government? Well, probably and not sort of enough. To, yeah. Pro-
1: probably not enough. Those
2: pesky elections
0: keep getting in the way. I'm not <laughs> <Yeah>. saying that. <laughs> it's not the, look, I, the
1: other thing is you learn from experience. I mean, it did look more benign. The economic settlement, the sort of Thatcher Blair, if I can put it that way, economic settlement, looked more benign. The fact that you know this sort of disaster was bubbling under with the city and the banks and all that wasn't well it wasn't obvious enough and and it wasn't properly acted upon do, do you see what i mean so so in a sense, it's partly that things were much more unstable than it appeared
0: and it's so hard to know i mean did you do you have a completely different experience of this sure than we would sure. but when you're thinking about what you might do short term mm-hmm. medium term do you have any sense that of the need to take a step back and try and kind of frame it, not in grand historical terms, not like where are we in the 100-year story of modern democracy, but is this a particular kind of moment? Is it something that we should recognise? Now. Think, well, then or now, but do you think politicians have that? So even if they can't think 20, 30 years ahead, do they have that capacity to take a step back and think, when we look back on this period, maybe in five or ten years' time, in what ways is it going to seem unusual or different? Because that's the thing that seems so
2: hard for. Do you think it's a bit like do. the rest of us think about house prices? So you know there's something off about it. You know your house keeps doubling in value every seven years or whatever but it you're is. You're not going them. to be the one to and, do it. You know this isn't right. This is this defies gravity. But you don't want to start pulling at the thread in case it all unravels very quickly. Is that a bit how yeah, and a politician that? might think about the this? Yeah, now suppose.
1: Look, being speaking personally, I always had an ambivalence about the new labour project. I was obviously part of it. But I, as I say, I had an ambivalence because I both understood its electoral potency and its electoral apparent necessity. But I also had my frustrations with it. And in a sense that I think that sort of reflected in what And I'm not saying, you know, I was right and everybody was wrong, obviously. But so I suppose I kind of had that sense about it you know, the attitude to tax, for example, that we didn't do enough to create the sense that tax was the price you pay for the good society. And that there were moments when we did it, like when Brown raised taxes for the NHS, but it was a bit of a sort of isolated peak uh, when he did that. So I I suppose I I had some of that sense at the time, probably not enough, though. With Corbyn,
0: because in some ways he... He has the advantages and disadvantages that he sort of sat that whole period out in a way. Or sure. Or at least he was, he was on the margins and he was also a critic of it. And he's both a quintessential politician of 2018 and he's also a politician of the 1980s and in some ways of the 1970s too. Do you feel that the Corbyn Project has enough of a recognition of what's new about now? So if that period is very unusual, that sort of 15-year period of the Great Moderation is very unusual, and Corbyn has the advantage that he never believed in it, basically. But he never believed in it for reasons that come out of the things that preceded it, not the things that came after it. Do you have anxieties? I know it's hard for you to answer. You're still an active politician. But do you have anxieties that um, he's coming at this from the wrong sort of no, perspective? You no,
1: know, you know, when you talk to the people around him, uh, as I do... They have that sense. I mean, they have that sense, and I think he does too, that this has got to become a forward and, and be a forward-looking agenda. And so when you, when you look at the detail of their policy on energy, for example, it's not simply a return to the past. It's actually a more intelligent idea about, you know, the public sector operating on a regional basis, for example. Similarly, in relation to railways, you know, and in a sense, I think it's partly a sign of sort of how far we've come, that it's seen as somehow quite radical, whereas in the rest of Europe, the railway policy (laughs) that he's got is what's seen as sort of mainstream right and left. And, you know, they're they're talking about the UBI and so on. So so it's got to have a forward-looking dimension. I think there is a recognition of that, though.
0: If one of the divides... So there are two huge divides. We talk about this on our podcast all the time. Two big divides in contemporary politics. One is people who went to university and people who didn't. And the other is basically over forty-five and under forty-five. It looks like that's the that's the cut just off on the line. I was going to say. So we're all. Um, so I didn't on... go to university, and I am under forty-five. So, so you can speak. Yeah, I can speak.
2: Yes, I am. Yeah. <laughs> what are you? Forty forty-five in April. Oh, right, yeah, right. Yeah. So you are the voice of <laughs> yeah, the other the, half. The other half.
0: Yeah. So if we leave, the, well, we can come back to the university one. But um, on the the generational one, do you think that people who are twenty-five now? I mean, it's hard for us to say, but do you think... I mean, I teach students, but do you think they see it completely differently? I mean, do you think there has been a real sea change in how people who are, twenty, say, 25 now think about the future, think about big political questions? Are we actually possibly even missing how big the change is, that this is the beginning of something really dramatic, a shift? Because the other possibility is that as they become 35, 45, 55, they're just going to... You know, they're not going to go through life as these... Frustrated radical people, but they're going to slowly become more, more moderate, moderate, conservative. Homony, yeah. conservative. If there are any homes to own or any jobs for them to have, I mean, it's that question that does the future for them just look like this? Frankly, open and possibly even terrifying thing that it wasn't. I mean, do you think we're just missing it?
2: I never know when you. Talk I mean, maybe about... we should ask them. But <laughs> <laughs> well, speaking them. of an underfoot, yeah. <laughs> no, you know, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sometimes I'll read comment pieces in the paper about millennials and you know what life is like and it often seems to be a certain type of privilege living in London type I don't know if life is that different when you get outside of London. I think there are problems, like you see that the this generation's income is going to be lower than what the parents expected. But I don't know about things like the fixation on home ownership, for example, and you'll never be able to own a house if you're a millennial. Is that true in Doncaster? I mean, I'm not saying there's no problem there, but I think we can sometimes get really carried away by yeah. what we read in the comment pages of The Guardian. And those millennials who write in those pieces actually aren't typical of their generation.
1: Well, I think a lot of the problems are common i may part company from you david i don't know on this i find it incredibly exciting the attitude
2: of young people no i wasn't saying i'm not no
1: excited. no fair enough I sorry. sounded sorry. like I no was no terrified. sorry but you say
2: are young people are you saying, is there nothing new under the sun like young people are like this and then as they get yeah, older and i was
0: actually try, i think i'm alive to the possibility it could be really radically different i think things like what it means to have a job what it means to have a career what it means to sort of plan your life just looks so different even for a generation like ours 20 years ago, where there was a stability to that. And a lot of that has gone. And so the appetite for fresh thinking yeah. and new ideas and may I find be that, bigger.
1: It, I find that desire for idealism incredibly inspiring. I really do. And I don't want to sound sort of dewy eyed about it. But I think it is inspiring and energizing. Uh, and the fact that people are saying, we're not sort of Traumatized by the 1992 general election because we weren't born when the 1992 general. <laughs> and even if we had been, we wouldn't. Be, election yeah, right. happened. You know, we kind of want to know what are the solutions for today's society. I was at this seminar in um, New York just before Trump was elected, and uh, the Nation magazine, where I used to be an intern myself. And um, this young woman, uh, an intern, this this chap, this older guy, asked a question. He said, "Why do you think?" He said that. Um, Young people are turning to these old-fashioned ideas like socialism today. And she cut in, rightly, before I had a chance to answer. And she said, old-fashioned, she said, "It's brand new to me. She said, I grew up under Bill Clinton. And, you know, I think that's, I think that's sort of what a lot of people are thinking. And I think there's something quite refreshing about that.
0: Do you think it can be channeled back through the party system? I mean, to go back to my thing, I'm not saying we're done with elections. I'm not saying we're done sure. with democracy. But that way of doing politics, it's not been around that long in this country longer than some others in parts of Europe. We're only talking a generation or so. And the story of everyone being able to vote, universal franchise, political party democracy is a at most a hundred year story. If that it may only be a 50 year story, actually, if you think of full enfranchisement, lots of places in the world it's not going to last forever. But do you think it might be that these really dramatic changes and these big ideas are going to have to go round it? I mean, if you just look at the party system, if you look at the way electoral politics works, it still looks pretty stuck, pretty divided and divisive. And then all these amazing ideas that you talk about on your podcast that cut across that divide. Is it a mistake to think we can channel it through? I'm not advocating anything that would be non-democratic sure, sure, no. I, think, radical... I feel bad about now about saying no, 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 that i'm not I feel, I, accusing you of wanting to abolish elections. i know too many people <laughs> who kind of academics particularly who go to china and come back and say you're so great <laughs> they don't they don't have to worry about they can plan for the long term. we know more. you're not
2: advocating <laughs> the chinese road so what, uh, what, not, what does that so, look then then is it look like then is it social campaigning is it so, issue so, poli- based? so political
0: parties particularly i mean that i always think that's the big question in a way what would the kind of democracy we we, I'm sure we still want look like if the political party is the bit of it that's dying. The classic political party. If it's going to be replaced with movement politics. I mean the Labour Party itself maybe But five hundred and
1: sixty thousand members. I mean it doesn't show much signs of dying.
0: Yeah, but is it not becoming something different? Is it not more like a social movement than a good I mean Yeah, so that's this is one of my questions, which is are we moving into an age it possibly is where this is this is social movement politics.
1: There's... I mean, I'm so party pre on this, so, you know, it's like I don't think I can give a very good answer because I'm You're a part of in the pre- representative democracy in a party system. But, but look, I think representative democracy will do OK if it can respond to the desire for change. And just on this point about Labour and the Tories, I don't sort of say this all the way, but I think it's interesting to think about what happened after 1945, because after 1945, both parties ended up responding with a new settlement, the Tories in particular, you know, reformed dramatically to take account of what uh, the Labour government had brought in uh, and the changes that the Labour government had brought. And they kind of, they totally turned themselves upside down politically. I wonder whether that might be one path here. If Corbyn were to win an election...
0: The Overton window would move. The Overton window
1: would move. And you already see a lot of Tories. I think the next Tory leader will be somebody who does what may promised, but isn't really delivering on. And I think you hear quite a lot of Tories sort of saying that under the surface.
0: So do you think, to go back to where we started, since that period of surprises, it's all been a bit stuck again. And then if you look at British politics, and one of the amazing features of it, we don't believe the polls anymore, but insofar as we do, they just don't move. And we're back to two-party politics. It looks a bit like the 1970s in some ways. Two-party politics, no one seems to much A lot of people don't much like the choice they're given between these two parties and they don't see anywhere else to go. And there might not be a huge amount of movement. It may be that the next election is really attritional. It's one of these kind of every vote council elections. Or it may be that we're at the beginning of this period. We're going to have many more nights where you come up and you say the baby's sleeping or not sleeping. But my God, do you think we've still got more of those to
1: come? Should we sort of prepare uh, ourselves I'm, for a I've period? got out of the forecasting business after 2015, but... Uh, <laughs> I'm not asking you to forecast uh, uh, no, a particular no, shot, uh, but it's uh, just... Well, I, I think the media and political class has proved itself, you know, and I include myself in this, have be, proved itself to be not exactly have its finger on the pulse. No, and the
0: bubbles are still completely there, mm-hmm. aren't
2: they? Yeah, it feels to me almost like people are looking... I mean, this is based on a gut instinct. It's not based on anything other than that. That may, Maybe there'd be some type of common sense the next time round or some kind of, oh, we've, we've all got a bit carried away. We've done our protest votes. It feels like maybe there would be some kind of return to normalcy. And a bit of buyer's remorse, a bit of that feeling that... Maybe, yeah.
0: Yeah, we did that. Would we really want to do that again?
2: Yeah, I mean, I don't think we're going to carry on forever just voting for the most outlandish <laughs> that's not how it's going to go that's not how it goes on x factor
1: <laughs> i mean i think the one other thing i would say which we've not covered is maybe i've partly been surprised by how many good ideas there are out there but i think the other thing that has surprised me about doing the podcast or not surprised me but sort of cheered me up is the desire people have to reach out to people they disagree with I, I, yes I don't, yeah, it yeah, has absolutely, really yeah. come through yeah in audience reaction, in what people have come on to so say, so maybe that's
2: where I'm getting that from. Just this this idea that people are like we, we've had our fun now. Let's let's get how they reach
1: out. How you mean across sort of lots,
0: partisan? Divides, lots or... of people
1: end up saying to us, you know, yeah, I think it's a real problem that I'm a Remainer who doesn't know any leavers. Yeah. Um, you know, we've had comedians coming on who suggest their ideas. And and one of the running themes that's really interesting has been, you know, people should talk to each other on trains so they get to know the other point of view. There's just quite a lot of that around. Yeah. And, and not, quite an audience response to that.
2: And not about evangelizing or changing people's minds. It's like we've got all this disharmony. What else is there, though? What is there that unites people? I think. We get a lot of sense of that from both the email we receive from listeners and some of the guests we have on the podcast And too. do you think
0: they're going out, these comedians, and then getting on trains and... One of them, finds... them is. <laughs> <laughs> One of them is.
2: Helen Monks. I mean, she, she goes yeah, out and on yeah. trains, yeah. yeah, well, finds... Finds uh, people. Brexiteers yeah, she to, t- talk to everybody, and then if she finds somebody she disagrees with, she tries to find common ground, which sounds horrendous to me. But somebody came on and had an idea of like not cat cafes where you go to strike the stroke the cats, but cafes where you go to find somebody you actively disagree with and, and, then stroke and try yeah, yeah, <laughs> stroke their egos. That's the uh, new. That's the new policy. You know,
1: we all whatever happens, whatever the precise form of Brexit, all of that, we have to live together in the, I wasn't this. I often say we have to live together in the same country afterwards.
0: Thanks so much to Jeff and to Ed. If you want to hear the lecture that I gave that we cut Ed out of, but only because we couldn't fit him in, that's available and we'll... we'll change his excuse. change my <laughs> excuse. Uh, we'll link to it on Twitter and also... The talk that I gave where I'm sceptical about democracy, but I'm not saying it's a bad idea because I'm feeling really defensive
2: about that. Oh, yes. C- can I just Jeff. ask, you've got a bag with you that I really, I mean, no, I really like the cut of your jib with that bag. And it's I would a good like, shape. Could, it? could, I, could yeah. I buy one of those? Yeah, You
0: could. If you went to our website, you'd find that actually those bags are for sale. And um, TalkingPoliticsPodcast.com, click on buy. Shop. that shop, You can get one of our bags. I'm going to do that. <laughs> Thanks, Jess. And do join us again next week, where we'll talk more about reasons to be sort of cheerful and sometimes not. My name's David Runciman, and we've been talking politics.
2: You're such a pro! Yeah! Should we...
0: um... So we have a little. I'm now genuinely self-conscious. No, don't be daft.
2: <laughs> do partly
0: because I, I, as I was saying, I spent my, I spent the last fifteen years listening to you. So.
2: Oh, I didn't know that.
0: Yeah. Oh. No, I've listened to you way back. You and you Pete. Oh, oh bloody hell! Yeah, that yeah. is way back. Yeah. I, mean, I honestly yeah. feel the same. So. Yeah, so I feel like, just I can't do this. My head You can
1: do that. Definitely can. I'm in the presence of greatness. <laughs> you can't too much, David. Right, uh, you def- You definitely can. Okay